Welcome to the very first Tallboy podcast, where we will bring you the latest need-to-know information about money, markets, and technology. We are your hosts, Joe and Paul. In today's episode, unemployment hits 3.5%, Aramco is set to IPO, and Amazon is headed to New York City. You're listening to the Tallboy podcast. Today's tall boys are the Boom Sauce Double IPA from the Lord Hobo Brewing Company in Cambridge, Massachusetts. We will give you our rating on these beers at the end of the pod. Okay, Joe, our first story of the day. Unemployment rate goes down to 3.5%. It's the last job report of the decade. Non-farm payrolls increased by 266,000 jobs, beating analyst estimates of 187,000. And, you know, this is a, an incredibly important jobs report because it is the lowest jobless rate since 1969. And that was the first year that Nixon was in office, just to put that into a little bit of perspective here. It's monumental. So let's break it down, right? Wages increased by 3.1%, beating analyst estimates of 3%. Leisure and hospitality made up for 45,000 of these jobs, 54,000 added in manufacturing. Mining loses 7,000, which brings the total losses in mining to 19,000 since May. Now, Paul, that's a lot of numbers. Can you go ahead and break this down for our listeners a little bit and tell them exactly what that means? Yes, Joe. So I'm really looking at the leisure and hospitality numbers here. Adding jobs is a very interesting factor. Okay. And uh, and why are the leisure and hospitality numbers so important? Okay. So they're really, leisure and hospitality gets punished in cyclical markets. So it's really good to see strength and confidence in travel. People are willing to spend money on trips, vacations. It's a good fundamental metric of a healthy economy. Uh, manufacturing on the other side, adding 54,000 jobs might make you believe that tariffs have let off, but that's just not the case. 48,000 of these jobs were from General Motors employees ending their strike. Manufacturing still looks to be disproportionately affected by the tariffs, Joe. Well, it's a great jobs report, and let's see if we can carry this into 2020 and ultimately into the next decade. Yeah. Great. So we're going to move on to our next story, which is about the Aramco IPO. So Saudi Aramco is set to IPO on December 11th, this Wednesday, at a $1.7 trillion valuation, which makes it the world's biggest IPO. Now, this valuation falls short of Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman's $2 trillion valuation. $2 trillion is absolutely enormous. And what's really interesting here is that the Saudi banks are offering loans to people at upwards of four times their maximum lending limits to buy shares of the Aramco IPO. It's very unprecedented that any bank would lend to any individual to buy shares of an IPO. Yeah, that's definitely a very abnormal financial practice. It seems like banks are making a significant effort to make this IPO a massive success. Yeah, what are, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, so Aramco is only issuing $25 billion worth of shares, which is only about 1.5% of their company. So in the grand scheme of things, that's going to give us a little bit of a flavor of what's going on, uh, you know, in terms of their valuation, everything with it, with their company during this IPO, but it's just a little taste. I agree. One of the things that's also interesting to note is that there's questions about Saudi's liquidity, 
right? With all of the banks injecting so much cash into this deal, there's so much focus around it, and especially with them lending to individuals to buy the IPO, people are questioning if the banks are going to have cash left over to lend uh, for any other general purposes for that matter. Uh, The banks are saying that this is no concern, but it's going to be really interesting to see how this IPO plays out. Definitely. And just taking a step back here, Aramco is the most profitable company in the world ever. They net over $111 billion. Um, That number was in 2018. But it's not all good here because the oil industry as a whole and oil consumption, when we look at the demand over the next couple of decades, we're going to be seeing some generally massive drop-offs, especially for this industry. Um, We also have just general concerns over the declines of their profits. In 2019, it's projected that their net income is going to be around $100 billion, which is $11 billion less than 2018. So while all things are pointing in a good direction, for the most part, for Aramco, um, there are definitely those those downsides. Yeah, I I, I agree, Joe. It's going to be one of the most interesting IPOs of the decade, our generation for sure. Um, it'll be it'll be interesting to say the least. All right. Uh, the next story we got is Amazon going to New York City. Yep, Amazon is taking its first steps, baby steps, into New York City. Now, on Friday, Amazon agreed to bring 1,500 jobs to New York City's bustling new Hudson Yards neighborhood in a deal without any fi- any financial incentives from the city or from the state. Now, this news comes less than a year after Amazon dropped its plans to build its second headquarters, their HQ2, in Long Island City in Queens. Now, I know we all remember this drama, and now that they're coming into New York, some see this as a big win, but others see this as a big loss for New York. Paul, can you tell us a little bit about what you think about this? Yeah, Joe. So I think to understand if this is a real win for New York City, we got to go back and we got to see what happened with the prior HQ2 proposal. So originally, New York City was offering Amazon $3 billion in tax subsidies. Amazon was going to provide 50,000 jobs. They were going to invest $5 billion into the Long Island community. Uh, and that whole entity was projected to generate $30 billion in tax revenues uh, to the city and state. What happened was that political influences led by AOC and Bernie Sanders suggested to avoid giving away the $3 billion in subsidies and ultimately steered New York City into removing the incentives and keeping Amazon from going through with their HQ2. Yeah, you know, and at this time, those the proponents wanted to instead spend the $3 billion on improving schools, infrastructure, and other federal projects. And while that sounds good in theory, that $3 billion to, to spend, that's not necessarily how how fiscal policy and and numbers work. Exactly. And those $3 billion uh, were tax subsidies. So that's not cash that the city or state has to invest in those projects. In the New Deal, only 1,500 jobs are going to be brought, which implicates a smaller financial impact on the city. With the city operating at an increasingly large deficit, projected to get to $8.5 billion a year, I think this is a a loss for the city in general. And the 1,500 jobs are kind of uh, just... Headlines, Definitely. The new Amazon influx in New York City, in the grand scheme of things, is trivial. Simply another large company opening a small regional office in a large city. I totally agree, Joe. The next topic we're going to talk about is our tech take. And for this tech take of the week, we're going to be looking at how Facebook, Google, and Twitter are handling pressure to remove political ads from their platforms. Yeah, definitely, Paul. So it's really interesting what's been going on, actually. Google and Twitter have changed their political ad rules already. But Facebook is being really stubborn, and they haven't haven't done anything yet. They're proposing some new things, but they haven't done anything yet. 
Um, you know, Facebook is really just not backing down from their anything goes policy. Uh, they are rather just saying that they're exploring other ways to address the possibility of false political ads and, you know, data leaks as well. There are some rumors going around that the company is considering a solution that includes raising the minimum number of people a political advertiser can target from 100 to a couple thousand, which is going to make them more generalized in messages and be much more susceptible in any cases of false advertising. So that is a solution that is floating about. Um, another proposed solution, something to think about, is to just not allow political ads to target users at all and just rather have all ads go out to a general audience. You know, there are pros and cons with this. Cons being that if Facebook limits targeting, it'll feed a lot of people irrelevant ads. And that's the opposite of a good user experience, which would be a loser for a lose for a loss for the user. Yep. So as the 2020 presidential election nears and Facebook is getting increasing pressure from the public, political candidates, the government, uh, what approaches have Google and Twitter taken on this front, Joe? Definitely. So as, a, as I mentioned before, they've already um, made moves publicly to limit the political appearance of, ad, of political ads um, on, on their platforms. So Twitter just outright banned political ads, and they stated that they will continue to monitor for any violations to make sure that that's just not apparent on their platform at all. Google, meanwhile, has implemented new limits of how political advertisers can target users. So this is something that Facebook can certainly take a look at. Um, those targeting limits include restricting the demographic portions of the targeting to age, gender, and general location. So keeping it very ambiguous and vague um, while still allowing for the, uh, the marketing opportunity. Now, if they continue to be very restrictive on political ads entering the 2020 presidential election, it will likely send voters elsewhere for, for political ads. So if Facebook theoretically does not back down and they remain open to political ads, we will be seeing an enormous amount of political ads on Facebook if they stay to what they've been saying. At the end of the day, if Facebook does nothing, people will be upset. If they do something, people will be upset. Have fun with this one, Zuck. Your move. Okay, next segment. Startup I'd invest in if it were public. Joe, we got Reddit. We do have Reddit today. And some of you may be thinking that Reddit, it's kind of a little bit of a more dinosaur company. It's been around for a while. It's not the most exciting or thrilling uh, you know, startup that exists. But they just re recently entered this hyper-growth phase. Um, something clicked inside of the company that said, it's time to grow really fast and to take on the big competitors. In 2019, Reddit's active user base grew 30%. And that number is now 430 million monthly active users. Included in that is 199 million unique posts and 32 billion upvotes. So that's a lot of action on their platform. That's insane. How yeah. does that compare to Twitter? Yeah, it's definitely a lot. So if we look at one of their biggest competitors, which is going to be Twitter, um, in the space. Uh, last year in 2018, Reddit actually took over Twitter when looking at monthly active users. Now I know Twitter has a lot of, uh, of metrics that a lot of other companies don't use, but when looking at this general monthly active user metric, in 2018, Reddit had 330 million active users, monthly active users, which was more than Twitter a year ago. They grew 30% this year to 430 million. So Reddit is definitely bustling. They also just raised $300 million in a Series D that values them at $3 billion. 
They have more monthly active users than Twitter. Twitter is valued at $23 billion. Reddit is valued at $3 billion. If Reddit were a public company and the situation that is current is current, we would invest in Reddit. This is not investment advice, but we would invest in Reddit. Yes. Love it. I'm a big Reddit guy too. There's some great, great threads on there. All right. My personal favorite segment, tweak of the week. This week we got Vernon Unsworth. Okay. Let me tell you, Vernon Unsworth is a British spelunker. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with the term spelunker, a spelunker is simply a cave explorer. Yeah, well, Vernon lost his defamation lawsuit against Elon Musk after Elon called him pedo guy in a tweet. So how did we get here? Back in summer of 2018, when the youth soccer team from the UK had gotten stuck in a flooded cave in Thailand, Elon had many submarines made by Tesla, they were never deployed, to save the soccer team. Unsworth, in turn, called this a PR stunt and suggested to Elon to stick the submarine where it hurts. Ouch. Ouch. Elon had no choice but to fire back a tweet where he referred to Unsworth as the pedo guy. That's a tough name. Tough one. Unsworth didn't appreciate that, so he decided to sue Elon Musk for $190 million in damages. So this did eventually become a lawsuit, and and there's a fun fact about this case. Two prospective jurors in the laws, in the in the courtroom were excused from the case because they followed Musk on Twitter, but four Tesla owners got spots on the bench. So definitely very interesting. I love it. And it's good to see Musk come out on top on this. And, you know, some final thoughts is experts say that this could be a landmark decision on what counts as libel on social media. So thanks, pedo guy. You helped set a precedent. You definitely did. And hopefully that becomes positive in the future. We're going to move into our lifestyle segment now where we talk about ways that you can improve your life a little bit through just very small um, kind of things that you can take advantage of. So if you haven't already, open your Spotify app and check out the Spotify Wrapped Summary. The Spotify Wrapped Summary is, some, is a presentation that Spotify puts together that collects all of your data points throughout your entire year of everything you've done on the platform and stitches it together into a really cool visualized presentation. It'll tell you things like your most listened to artists. For example, Paul's most listened to artist was Taylor Swift. Not and it'll also uh, show you a lot of uh, things about your listening habits. So it's a really cool way to engage with kind of how you experiment and uh, experience music. Yeah, so that, that's a pretty big accusation there for uh, T-Swift, Joe. Um, it is a lonely time. Your Spotify wrapped. <laughs> it's a lonely time to be an Apple Music listener. You get no perks like that. Joe, what were your highlights of the wrap-up? Yeah, you know, first of all, it was definitely really interesting because social media was exploding with this. Spotify included some really cool features that allowed you to easily upload it to social media. So right now, you could definitely say it's a lonely time to be an Apple Music listener. My personal Spotify rap, though, definitely geared more towards um, my acoustic tastes. I, I had some John Mayer and Ed Sheeran in there, Paul. What about you? Mine was definitely hip-hop heavy. So Artist of the Year was Nav. Um, I will say the highlights for me though, 2016, 2017, I went on a heater and put up over a hundred thousand minutes 
of music back to back years. Paul in 2016 spent one over 150,000 minutes listening to music. It's a wild time. He's That's, great music. It's more than 2x any other person that I've seen. There was no T Swift in that. Here was another unique thing that I found is that reggae was the number two genre for me if I combine underground hip-hop and pop rap. Definitely a lot of interesting stuff. Check out Spotify Rap. It'll do you a favor. It's cool. Next, we're going to move into uh, our consulting question of the week. Paul? Yeah, so this week, we took a question from Fishbowl. OP was asking for some consulting travel tips. So, Joe, start us off. What you got? Yeah, so OP definitely brings up a great point. As consultants, we are always on the move and will likely be traveling. So my pro tip for OP would to be to get a credit card that's provided by the hotel, um, the hotel company that you are staying at and expense all of your hotel costs to that card. That way, you'll earn multiples on every dollar that you spend on hotels while traveling on all of your projects. So for example, if you stay in a Marriott hotel, you can get approved for a Chase Marriott Bonvoy card and get 6x points on all of your Marriott purchases, which can effectively add an extra one to a few thousand dollars of disposable income every year to your bottom line. Note that Amex also offers a credit card option for Marriott. That's a great tip, Joe. Yeah, you got to rack up the points. You got to go after the statuses. It's going to get you the upgrades, the good rooms, and definitely save you money in the long run. So we've made it to the end of the pod, okay? Our rating of today's beer, the boom sauce from Lord Hobo out of Cambridge, Massachusetts. Joe, what is your rating? So Lord Hobo is a brewery that definitely hails a lot of hype in the New England area. And Boom Sauce is no stranger to Boston. I've heard of this one a ton and was definitely super excited to to test it out. And I must say it does live up to the hype. My rating on the Boom Sauce from Lord Hobo is going to be an 8.9. 8.9. It, it really hit. It did hit. It was a good beer. This was an excellent beer. Um, Paul, what would your rating be? I'm going to give the Boom Sauce... In 8.2. I think it would be higher. It tastes delicious. It's a very heavy beer. So I'm, I'm going to knock off a couple points there. And then I'm going to leave some room for for the 10s, for the 9s. Uh, we still got a lot of beer to drink. We'll figure out what comes next. It does say it has tropical, juicy, smooth flavor, which I, I would say is pretty accurate. It's a phenomenal beer. Overall, I'd recommend eight, it. Nine, eight, nine. Highly recommended. All right, everybody. Listeners, thank you for listening. Keep in mind that the Tallboy podcast is not a research report or investment advice. These opinions are our own and do not reflect the views of our employers. Nothing discussed in the podcast should be used for the foundation to make any investment decisions. This has been Joe and Paul bringing you the latest news in money, markets, and tech. Thank you for listening. Until next week.